Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tapeheads is the podcast where we watch a movie on VHS, either from my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. And sometimes it's a spooky movie. Yeah, it, it is the Halloween season. And we have a treat for you listeners this time. Uh, we are doing Scream, uh, one of my all-time favorite movies. One of the, One of those movies that I love so much, and there's already been so much said about it that it's a little bit daunting to have on the show, I'll admit, because, like, what hasn't been said about Scream? Well, I haven't listened to any of that commentary, so I don't okay. feel any pressure. <laughs> Before we get into the ads, uh, what was the first time... Do you, do you remember about what age you were the first time you saw Scream? I feel like I watched it in the DVD era, but I have no idea when... Somehow it didn't stick with me as much as uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer and some of those other teen horror movies. I mean, that was another Kevin Williamson scripted movie, I Know What You Did Last Summer. Yeah, and I, I, I honestly don't know why, because I enjoy it. I've seen it a few times with you now, and I and I enjoy it, but for whatever reason, it didn't hit me before. How old were you when you first saw it? Um, I was quite young when I saw it. My family, we all uh, lived in England for a few months when I was in the fourth grade. My dad was uh, teaching abroad. And I know that we saw it prior to that, like just prior to that, um, because I was obsessed with Scream and Scream 2, which had come out at that point. I guess that was 1998. And we'd rented them both on VHS. um, And I loved these movies. At the time, and then when Scream 3 came out, I actually saw it in the theater with my dad. And this was, uh, I remember at the time holding all three of them equally in opinion. I loved all three of these. I loved the whodunit nature of it. I loved this cast of characters. But as the years went on, it became clearer and clearer to me just how much better the first one is. I still enjoy the sequels, and I went to see 4 when it came out much later in 2011. But one is is clearly like just such a landmark movie. And um, I say that it was kind of a critical movie just because the 80s were kind of that slasher cycle. Halloween and its sequels. Well, Halloween was late 70s going into 80s. And then Friday the 13th, which is kind of a ripoff of that and all of its sequels. And of course, Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street uh, in 84. And just like every single year of the 80s, you're getting these slasher movies that were not particularly self-aware. And I love many of those movies, too. But people got really burnt out uh, on those movies. Like they kind of reached their zenith in the mid 80s when these movies were making a lot of money at the box office. But by the time you have like a lot of direct-to-video stuff coming out, mm. 90s horror was kind of in a bad spot. Um, they th- sort of cheapened the genre Yeah, they kind of... Uh, killed the golden goose a little bit. I mean, pick your metaphor, I guess. But uh, it was just horror was looked at as very cheap and very less than, unfortunately. Um, and there are exceptions to that, um, like Candyman. Uh, I re- <laughs> it was my birthday recently, and I had you sit through uh, <laughs> Demon Knight with Billy Zane, uh, which I think is uh, definitely an exception to that. It's very weird. I'd say that what makes Scream so special... And there's a lot of reasons for this. I think mostly it's from Kevin Williamson. It was the first movie to have these characters that uh, are aware of the genre and sort of call out all these, you know, pop culture references to the horror movies that they've seen. Having a cast of this caliber is very unusual. I mean, 
yes, you think retroactively to like Jamie Lee Curtis being in Halloween, but she wasn't a star at the time. She was mm-hmm. mostly known for being, you know, Janet Lee and Tony Curtis's daughter. Right. So this is like a big studio slasher movie when that was out of vogue and it made over a hundred million dollars at the box office like it blew away everything that had come before it Which including the nightmares including the friday the 13th and and again like just had this great whodunit aspect to it which you hadn't really seen well you saw it in like friday the 13th and black christmas but those were in a way kind of a cop-out <laughs> because the killer was like someone who wasn't even you know like for example like mrs Voorhees shows up like in the last reel of Friday the 13th, there's no way you could guess that that's who the killer is. Whereas this is very clever in that, um, by the way, spoilers if you haven't seen Scream, we're going to tell you who these killer killers are in this movie. Oh. Uh, I'll, I'll stay away from spoilers for the sequels, though. I actually don't know if I've seen the sequels, but yeah, I think that's one of the things that on on watching this again, I realize that I do like that suspense and that you that as a viewer I'm so much more invested because I can kind of feel closer to that mystery as I try to help not help as I try to solve it mm-hmm. you know and it, it it's just that much more engaging and it just feels more a little bit more original versus all these other um sort of straight to the slasher movies yeah definitely and I have a soft spot for those too like I've seen all the Fridays and all of that but this is a much classier affair. All of the actors are outstanding across the board. There's character, all the characters you really care about, um, which is very unusual for the genre. And I actually, even though it is quite violent, it definitely has much more restraint than Mm -hmm. certainly some of the later uh, slasher movies. Like, it's a fairly low body count here with an emphasis on the suspense mm-hmm. and kind of the cat and mouse of it all with the voice on the phone and all of those elements. Yeah, there could be a lot more violence and there isn't, which is nice because I don't like excessively violent movies too much. I think one of the other things I enjoy about this is that there isn't a supernatural element so it's almost a little scarier because it feels like something that could happen, uh, which I which I think in some in some other films when it's just too when when um, it's a really heightened sort of magical reality I don't I sometimes don't feel quite as invested because it just doesn't it's it's not as scary to me for whatever reason when it has that sort of fa- fantasy element. Definitely. And that was definitely a problem with the 80s slasher cycle was, you know, in the first Halloween, Michael Myers is just a guy. But as the films went on, and they definitely course corrected, I think, with the the newer ones. But, um, you know, he became this immortal supernatural being. And that really isn't as scary. Kind of counterintuitively, because you'd think, oh, if you can't kill him, that's scary. Mm -hmm. But I think there's that part of your mind that's like, oh, well, this could never happen to me. Right. Because these things don't happen. Yeah, whereas that first Halloween movie is so effective and really quite terrifying. I'm going to quickly get through some ads. Uh, this is technically a Disney tape because uh, it's Dimension. Uh, unfortunately, our first time uh, in the Weinstein Brothers uh world because is this really the first Weinstein affiliated I think movie? so to my knowledge and we'll talk a little bit about that at this time there was Miramax which is more Harvey Weinstein the really bad one 
Uh, that's more like your Shakespeare in Loves, your, uh, you know, your Oscar bait type movies generally, or your indies that are bought at Sundance. Dimension was like their genre label, which mm. Bob Weinstein, the brother, headed up. So this, it was specifically like horror and action and things like that. Weirdly more profitable than Miramax, but less like, uh, you know, not like Oscar-y type of movies. Got it. Um, Bob, definitely less of a creep, but still a creep. Uh, (laughs) Enablers of creeps are totally creeps. Yeah. I mean, this is mostly a Kevin Williamson, Wes Craven movie. Actually, Drew Barrymore was very instrumental in getting this movie made, but... I, I do want to talk about some of the things, good and bad, that Bob Weinstein uh, did on this movie. So just a heads up on that. We'll be talking a little bit about the Weinstein brothers, but I'll try and make that minimal. But I guess what got me off on that tangent was uh, Disney owns Miramax, or at least they were like their corporate partners at this time. And as we know, Disney tapes have a lot of ads. Um, Gotta get those kids on whatever thing you want to hype them up on. And um, let me let me just talk about this specific tape. This was the one that we bought. And it's weird because... Sorry, the, we being you and your family? Yes. Uh, that my Yeah, this is like my family's copy of Scream. A couple things to tell... This is an interesting tape because for starters, it's uncut. By which I mean there is gore in this version of the movie that is has not been on any release since she's crazy and you said on that the this... blu-ray on the dvd there is a shot and this is the version that i kind of grew up with so when i finally saw it on in hd i was like wait why is yeah I mean, the big one is in actually in the opening sequence right. when uh drew barrymore's boyfriend's like guts tumble out Mm-hmm. In most versions, there's like a close-up of his face. And I think it was to avoid getting an NC-17. But it's weird to me in this day and age of like unrated director's cut. Why is this version only on VHS? And why is it not even labeled as unrated? And you had said that some of the gore in this wasn't even in the theatrical release. I believe so, yes. Um, so I don't know if it was just an accident that this version has this gore restored. It's just so weird that only the VHS version would have that. It's pretty crazy that it kind of got through that way. And it's funny because it's distracting to see the movie. Uh, we, we went to the new Parkway in Oakland uh, a few years back with friend of the show, Chad, and his wife, Michelle. We got to see Scream on the big screen. And it was the cut version. And it's so weird because my brain is so used to the version that I saw a million times growing up that it feels like watching like the censored for TV version because there's yeah. a very awkward like close-up shot of the boyfriend's face just kind of like like gyrating. Yeah, and this was my first time seeing the uncensored version since mm-hmm. I'd never seen the VHS tape version of it. And it, it, it is it is weird cuz seeing that full gore with his guts hanging out it kind of catches you by surprise, but And it's only a split second, but it's very unsettling and uh it you lose that impact. You know, because this movie only has a few instances of real violence like that, it's it kind of loses some of the punch when it's replaced with that close up. Yeah, and I think I mean to your point, we're so used to different gore and violence in films now that it really doesn't seem that shocking that they would end up censoring it out. And then there's a couple other shots that are different. Um, When Drew Barrymore, at the end of that sequence, when her body is hanging from the tree, 
In this version, it slowly dollies in and it's this very spooky shot, whereas all other versions, they speed that up. Mm -hmm. So it's the same shot, but it's only like a second long. So it's this weird kind of like sped up version of the shot. And if you look closely, you can tell it's kind of been messed with. And there's other things here and there. Hopefully this version comes out in like better quality so you don't have to just watch it on VHS. Okay, but really quick, these ads. Scream 2. We're getting an ad for the sequel which before we see the first movie. Which confused me. I It kind of threw me off. And you were saying, oh, that's a spoiler for who survives. But then my point, my, my kind of counterpoint was, well, they would have already seen the ads and the posters for the new movie anyway. So people probably knew who survived. Scream was such a huge hit that they instantly greenlit the sequel and it was in theaters less than a year after the first one came out. Like, that's how fast the turnaround was. Uh, you can kind of tell. Scream 2 is a little bit of a mess. I like it. Uh, but this ad is fun. It's Randy, like, telling Dewey, the uh, Jamie Kennedy's character, telling David Arquette's character the rules of sequels. And the ad's kind of built around that. Then there's an ad for a movie called Night Watch with Ewan McGregor. Yeah. Which I guess is a flop because I am not familiar with this movie, but Never it looks it. like a sort of a thriller. Um, all of these are sort of thrillers that they're advertising. Ransom, the Mel Gibson movie where his son gets kidnapped, mm -hmm. which is a movie I liked and a movie that I had on VHS. But a funny thing about that is I remember, uh, I guess that was a Touchstone movie, which is another Disney, uh, like, kind of adult label. I mean, grown-up uh, movies for adults, I should say. Yeah, not, not um, adult as in sexually mature yeah. uh, content. I, have, I, I haven't seen Ransom in a while, but I do remember liking it. But I remember on at least one occasion, Ransom has an ad for Scream at the beginning and vice versa. And I remember one time, you know, coming home from school on Friday, it's the weekend, I pop in my copy of Ransom, and I see that ad for Scream, and I think to myself, you know, I think I'd rather be watching Scream right now. <laughs> and so I would eject Ransom and put in Scream. That happened at least once, but the reverse never happened. I would never sit down and watch Scream and be enticed to watch Ransom instead. Well, Ransom didn't have Nev Campbell. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Just had Mel Gibson. No, thank you. Then we've got one of these annoying ads that we talk about a lot where it's kind of your montage ad. Like, here's all the movies that are on VHS. And it's the most random collection of movies. And these are like Miramax, Dimension, Touchstone. Like, again, all these like Disney labels. Judge Dredd with Stallone. The Crow, Crimson Tide, Dead Presidents, Terminal Velocity, Pulp Fiction, weirdly. Because, you know, Tarantino is a member of the Miramax family. Uh, just like a lot of like really fast cut scenes from all these disparate movies. Mm -hmm. Next ad is a movie that loomed large in my family, Sling Blade. I don't think I've ever seen it. With Billy Bob Thornton. I found it how interesting it was that they marketed this as a thriller. If you were just watching this ad for Sling Blade, you would think... It's a movie about Billy Bob Thornton as a serial killer who just kills a bunch of people. But in reality, it's this very sensitive, like, independent movie that, yes, Billy Bob's character, um, Carl, when you first meet him, he ha is getting out of prison for a crime that he did commit. But then the rest of it is, like, a pretty optimistic story, generally, about him 
reintegrating into this small town and like having a really like wholesome relationship with this family and the only real like thriller element about it is there's the abusive husband played by Dwight Yoakam and it's kind of this question of is Billy Bob gonna snap and kill Dwight Yoakam so it's like a it's very much like a slow burn drama and not this like slasher thriller that this ad is kind of uh, conveying it to be the ad is tailored to the scream audience and the scream audience isn't gonna watch sling blade unless they think it's you know but would those people be disappointed if they rented sling blade and if you were going from scream to sling blade you would you would be kind of surprised how yeah. much of a slow burn sort of family drama it is it's kind of like the the time that my mom and I saw an ad for an Uma Thurman movie, and I don't remember what movie it was, but the ad made it seem like a really fun rom-com. And then we went to the theaters to see the movie, and the movie was actually kind of a sad drama, and the, and the, and the trailer had every single funny scene in it for the whole movie, so that it had that much kind of funny, lighthearted stuff, and then all the rest was more drama so we kind of like came trudging out of the theater like what wait that's not what we signed up for so i can see how you how it, it it's a little bit misleading if you're doing an ad for what you think people want to see instead of genuinely showing them what the movie's about i've experienced this with movies and i find that um, you know, we were just talking about Tarantino, but I remember the first time seeing Inglorious Bastards, I was a little disappointed just because the ad really emphasized Brad Pitt's character and really seemed oh. like it was more of like a man on a mission type th movie, but it was more of an expansive kind of ensemble piece, which I found the second time I saw it, I was not like forcing it to be the movie I thought it was going to be it was I was more just watching it for the movie it was and and now I've come to really I come to really like the movie mm -hmm. but um and I remember Drive with Ryan Gosling was another movie that was like that where it got a lot of flack for that's kind of an art house movie that marketed it itself as more of a mainstream thriller and people were really upset about that Mm -hmm. um, but I've always enjoyed that movie just for what it is. And not, and like I feel like it's better for all of its weirdness. Um, Man, we could have a whole episode about trailers because now I'm thinking of other trailers that were misleading, but we should probably move on. And you were saying that in this era, you felt like trailers did a better job of tailoring to the movie you're watching. I have an impression that when I would watch different VHS tapes, I'd sometimes see different versions of trailers for the same film, depending probably if they had enough budget. Some of these companies were making okay, this is our uh, trailer that we're going to throw on comedy VHS tapes. This is our th our trailer that we're going to throw on horror movies. This is our version of the trailer that we're going to throw on dramas. And they'll, they'd have kind of have it tailored for the different audiences to, to entice them into the film. But the consequence is that for some audiences that could be misleading and they might be setting them up for disappointment. But I think that was how they would try and kind of convert and pull people in. I almost feel like there has been such a backlash to misleading trailers that we're starting to see less of that. The way that trailers are seen now is very different because it used to be that they would package trailers with these different features, either to show them in theaters or on tapes or, you know, 
early in the DVD era, era I, I feel like there was a lot of focus on treating them like VHS tapes. So they would think of how they were packaging these things together with the different films and kind of pairing them together. But you don't really have that now. Now you either get bombarded with ads on whatever streaming service you're using. And those are kind of arbitrarily thrown at you. Like there was a, several months when we would watch MSNBC and all we would see was the ad for, for the movie Sing oh, over yeah. and over and over again to the point where you, I think, Sean, you were about to have a breakdown <laughs> if you had to see that trailer That's, again. That singing pig just drove me nuts. And for all I know, it's a good movie, but I'm never going to watch Sing for how many times we watch that ad. Well, and now it's Troop Zero on Amazon Prime yeah. is the ad we see constantly. Yeah, but... um. So now they they kind of just arbitrarily throw them out there. They're not necessarily tailored. They're they're really I think trying to pull people in generally for whatever that movie is and capture, you know, if they they can capture the audience, great. And then the the other thing is that a lot of people look up trailers and watch them on YouTube or these different services. So people are going specifically making a choice. I want to go and find the latest trailers and watch them rather than so they're not really packaged up neatly anymore. That's just not really a Thing. And then the last thing that we get before the movie starts is stay tuned after the feature because there's a, they call it a behind the scenes feature. This is clearly just the thing that was on the press kit because it's just a few interviews with the cast and crew that were clearly done on the set with like a generous amount of just footage from the movie. What I didn't like about this growing up was that the runtime on the box said 126 minutes. When I knew that this movie is 111 minutes, so they were including the runtime of the behind the scenes feature and my uh, type A brain just could not handle that. But doesn't it count? Because it's still part of the tape. That's part of the runtime. The runtime should be the movie including credits, but I do not think it counts the opening trailers or anything that happens after the movie. I don't know. That's all. That's all technically part of the of the time that you spend on the tape. If you don't fast forward. Oh, we're just gonna have to agree to disagree on this. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, Scream. Um, for the uninitiated, this is a movie that starts with a very iconic opening sequence where um, Drew Barrymore is home alone and she gets a call from this kind of gravelly, kind of creepy voice. Mm -hmm. It slowly becomes clear that she's talking to a killer who is outside on a cell phone. Yeah. And it kind of just escalates from there. Well, it kind of gradually escalates from wrong number to prank caller to, oh my God, I'm going to die. I think this is kind of a good place to start talking about the movie. One, just because this opening is, is so notorious and so linked to this movie you know, people frequently compare Drew Barrymore's appearance in this movie with Janet Leigh in Psycho, where the biggest name of the movie is killed off right at the beginning. And it's kind of this misdirect, even in the marketing of the movie, that, you know, we're looking at the VHS box of Scream right now, and Drew Barrymore is front and center. And that black and white photo of Drew Barrymore, like, holding her hand over her mouth like holding in a scream yeah you can't see this but sean's covering his mouth right now <laughs> maybe you can hear uh, how different my voice sounds uh, uh, no it's it is interesting because and i assume the posters from the time would be fairly similar where they're really treating her as if 
she's the lead. And so I could see as a somebody going in with no knowledge of the story to see her killed at the beginning would just throw had to have thrown the audiences for a loop. And she gets the and credit, which is an honorific that you give a famous person who maybe isn't the lead, but and maybe, you know, it, it, they can kind of be anywhere in the movie. Yeah. And I think that I, I definitely want to talk about Drew Barrymore here um, because it was her joining the movie originally to play Sydney, the Nev Campbell role, the lead. Oh, I didn't know she was yes. up for the lead. Um, the, and this is kind of important to the movie getting made because, um, you know, Kevin Williamson had this move, had this script that just poured out of him. He wrote the kind of horror movie that he wanted to see, which is really the best way to write something. It just poured out of him in a matter of days. It He gave it to his agent who'd started taking it around and people were kind of hesitant to do a slasher movie in the mid-90s. These things just weren't making money. But Drew Barrymore actually reached out and said, hey, I want to do this. And originally is Sydney. And that legitimized the movie to attract all this other talent, including Wes Craven, who himself was kind of trying to distance himself from like gory horror movies. So she really made this movie happen yeah. in a lot of ways. Wes Craven's involvement is interesting because the film is sort of meta about horror movies and even make makes kind of jokes and almost a little bit belittling about some of even Wes Craven's own work. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a great line. Um, oh, there's a couple of great lines. Uh, during the opening scene, this voice on the phone, they're talking about horror movies. They're clearly both fans. And, uh, you know, there's the famous line, what's your favorite scary movie? And they talk about Halloween and then they talk about Nightmare on Elm Street, which, of course, Wes Craven directed and wrote. And uh, she says that she loved the first one, but the rest suck. And, uh, <laughs> and famously, Wes Craven, um, you know, didn't come back for the second one, had a little influence on the third one. And mostly, and wasn't really involved with the series except for like New Nightmare and other things. I, I think that the the core people that really made this happen were Kevin Williamson, Wes Craven, and totally unappreciated, but Drew Barrymore. If Drew Barrymore had not signed on, I don't believe that this version of the movie would have happened. I mean, aside right. from her just being great in the opening, like 10 to 15 minute opening, none of these other stars would have signed on. It wouldn't have landed at a big studio. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have gotten Nev Campbell or all these great actors, certainly not Wes Craven. So um, yeah, hats off to Drew Barrymore for everything she did. Um, that being said, I'm really glad that she did not play Sydney. Because you love <laughs> Campbell. I think that her performance in this is super underappreciated. Uh, you know, as Sydney Prescott, she's kind of like carrying all the dramatic yeah. weight. She's also got a very physical role. She gets into a lot of um, altercations with the killer in which she's doing her own stunts most of the time. Probably yeah. not the jump off the roof at the end, but like <laughs> all the close quarters fighting with the killer and stuff. That's yeah. her. It's a it's a challenging role because she has to be a little bit funny, vulnerable. There's a little bit where she feels like she might be crazy, you know, mm -hmm. like maybe she's imagining things or conflating things or she's gotten things wrong, like, you know, and then and then she has to be tough, right? Because she fights yeah. them at the end. And 
I guess spoiler is okay for the first one. She's victorious. Yes. And, um, well, as the Scream 2 trailer at the beginning of the movie showed us, <laughs> uh, we know who survived this one. I mean, you know, we, we said the original title of this movie was Scary Movie. Um, and later on, uh, we had the Scary Movie spoof movies. I feel like that adds to this kind of false legacy for this movie that it's a comedy. I do not view Scream as a comedy. It's a horror movie first. It's like a lot of like really heavy dramatic stuff, especially around Maureen Prescott, the mom. I think that a lot of the Scream imitators were in spoofs were comedies, but this definitely has like a great sense of humor to it and a lot of like meta self-knowingness to it. But it takes the these characters very seriously to its credit. Yeah, and they I mean they raise the stakes right away with Drew Barrymore, her character's boyfriend's death and then her death and the reactions of her parents. I mean they really give this feeling of terror that this really horrible thing has happened to this small town and who's next. Mm -hmm. And those murders that open the movie are very shocking, whether it's in this version or the cut version, because he's the boyfriend is tied up and uh, she answers wrongly as to who the killer in Friday the 13th is, uh, which I've always thought was interesting because uh, she says that she's seen it 20 times, but she doesn't, I guess maybe she's seen like the sequels, but I feel like you would know who the killer is. Yeah, but she's movie. also panicking. That's this true. This guy's saying that he's going to kill her and her boyfriend. That's true. I we, I should give her, I shouldn't uh, blame the victim here. But yeah, the killer in the first Friday the 13th is the mom, as we've covered on this podcast. Yeah, and the boyfriend just gets sliced open on the patio and, and, uh, and she's gutted and hung from a tree as her parents come home. Like, it's a crazy way to open this movie. Yeah, it doesn't feel anything like a comedy. Yeah. Again, there's a comedic turn to lighten it a little bit. But it's, yeah. not, it's definitely not a comedy. Yeah, I don't think it's a tough watch, necessarily. Like, I'll put this on, like, any old time. But... It's like saying that Die Hard is a comedy. Just yeah. Because it has some humor in it. Yeah, I mean... The characters provide the humor, which I think is key. The threat is always real. It's set in the small town of Woodsboro, shot a lot in Northern California, um, in Santa Rosa and Healdsburg. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an FU to the Santa Rosa School District at the end. Yeah, apparently they were supposed to film at Santa Rosa High. Um, I actually learned this from my old roommates, Ricky and Rachel, who grew up in Santa Rosa. They were all set to film at the high school, but then they caught wind of like how violent the movie was and pulled the plug really late in the game, like when they would already were all set to shoot there. So they had to... I forget exactly where they ended up shooting. I think somewhere in Sonoma County. Mm-hmm. I think the Northern California setting is another thing that's always appealed to me about this movie. Yeah. Um, the later ones are shot in like LA and the South and it it's not, actually the fourth one might be Ann Arbor, but they never come back to Northern California and I know I'm biased, but as a Northern California person, but uh, there's something about the vibe of this movie that's very, it's just never captured the same in the sequels. Do you feel like the vibe is almost a little bit like Halloween H2O? A little bit, yes. Um, well, I mean, that that would just came out a couple of years later and certainly had Kevin Williamson's fingerprints all over it. Um, so it could be. Like, I love both of those uh, these movies quite a bit. Let's talk about these characters because I think that's also the secret weapon of this movie is just how likable this cast is. 
you know, I'm sure cynical people will say the typical like, oh, they're they're like in their 20s and they're playing high schoolers. But it's like I, I would much rather suspend my disbelief for a character's age than have bad actors in the movie. I think the fact yeah. that they have life experience just makes the movie that much better. Yeah. And we also don't want to talk about how, you know, so many people are destroyed by being childhood stars and all that stuff. Might as well have some adults in there. <laughs> Yeah, but we meet this uh, group of friends. I'm going to uh, just quickly go through. We got Nev Campbell, of course, as Sydney, Skeet Ulrich as her boyfriend, Billy, Matthew Lillard as his uh, goofy friend, Stu. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot to say about Matthew Lillard. I love all these performances. Jamie Kennedy, who's kind of the nerdy uh, video store clerk who does a lot of the... Uh, horror splaining throughout the movie, kind of laying out the rules of the genre. I just really don't like Jamie Kennedy in general. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know. I think I, I... have this associ- strong association of it with this show on the Jamie Kennedy experiment where he would do pranks on people, which is kind of mean. You know, I never saw that show, and maybe that's why I have such an affection for him. Because when I think of Jamie Kennedy, I think of Randy in these movies. Yeah. And I always loved that character. See, I didn't, I didn't see the sequel, so I guess I, I didn't... I think I only saw this one. And then he's he pops up in Tremors movies, doesn't he, eventually? In the more recent Tremors movies. Uh, yeah. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, then, then you've got Rose McGowan as Tatum... Uh, Sydney's best friend and her brother, who's uh, the the town deputy Dewey, played by David Arquette, uh, and then uh, of course Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, the uh, kind of hard copy knockoff reporter who's in town covering mm-hmm. the murders. Uh, you've got some other bit parts like Henry Winkler plays the principal of the school. Leah Schreiber has like a two second cameo, uh, which ends up paying off in the sequels. That's a lot of foresight to cast uh, like a fairly well-known actor in that role. And he's playing the person that Sydney accuses of killing her mother. Yes. Like that's some important backstory that we learn. Um, it's a year after. It's yeah. All, yeah. So to, to kind of set it up, her mother was murdered a year ago and she's still sort of reeling from it and trying to kind of figure things out. She had witnessed a man leaving the night that her mother was murdered and she was very sure that it was the character that uh, the character Cotton that Leah Schreiber plays. And Cotton's been put away. Um, Gail Weathers, uh, it was insistent that Cotton was framed um, a lot of this is... Sorry, is, Gail Weathers, who is the uh, newscaster played by... Uh, Courtney Cox, Courtney Cox. yeah. And Gail's even written, like, a trashy book about it. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of like, great backstory that I feel like with a clumsier writer than Kevin Williamson, it would have come out as just, like, a lot of bad exposition. But it unfolds, like, in a very natural way. We kind of learn that Sydney is in a, is starting to have second feelings about this because these crimes are so similar to the murder of her mom. There's a lot of complicated feelings about, well, if Gail's side, Gail and Cotton's side of the story is true, then that means her mom was cheating on her dad because um, that means that she had, like, consensual sex with Cotton and perhaps others in Gail's telling of the story. There's a lot of complexity to her character and to the background of what's happening in the town. And I, and I 
it's refreshing in the way that it's revealed because it's no one's no one's sitting down and then just describing all of it to someone which i i feel like happens a lot in horror movies that aren't quite as good where someone just has to sit down with another person and explicitly tell the story whereas this one they kind of reveal it in bits and pieces as we go along one one thing that i will say i like rose mcgowan's character i feel like she could she could um rub other people the wrong way but her character is very kind of frank and open and just kind of thinks what she thinks but she's also a caring and supportive friend who's there for sydney when she needs her Mm -hmm. um which i which i think is kind of a nice i guess one one thing that i would say that's positive about this movie is the two the two women that you spend more time with rose mcgowan and uh nev campbell's characters i think are kind of more powerful than you nor you would normally see and more positively drawn than you would normally see in many horror movies like i think in other lesser movies rose mcgowan's character would have been just a brainless kind of um stereotypical character who's just not very intelligent is really sexy you know she's just there for her boobs but she she actually brings like more to what's going on and a little bit more she has her own fight scene and that sort of thing where you can where you kind of can root for her yeah i think she is very well drawn and um to that end i think like uh gail weathers is a character that could have gone in a different direction and just been completely unlikable but the movie and the performance just totally redeems that character because mm-hmm. what's great is they set her up as sort of a foil to sydney and yet she's right from the beginning that cotton yeah. is innocent the killer is still on the loose yes she's really mean and she's you know uh she's in of, it for the fame she's in it for the fame uh unabashedly so but, you know, and this is, again, where an 80s slasher would just set her up to be, oh, the mean one, so you cheer when she gets killed. In this movie, you don't cheer when anybody gets killed. At least I don't, because um, everyone is, with the exception of the killers, like innately likable. And you kind of understand mm-hmm. where they're coming from, even in the case of Gail Weathers, who is not the most ethical person in the world no she's definitely not ethical i i I think she's definitely an interesting character and courtney cox does kind of definitely tread that line of being someone who is could be very very unlikable but she manages to make her very very charming and this is a role that she sought out because of course friends was at the peak of its popularity she was known as Monica. I mean, this is something that all the Friends cast members struggled with. Um, and maybe it's because I was exposed to Scream so early, but I've never had that problem with Courtney Cox in this movie. I always mm. just see her as Gale right away. Yeah. Whereas we saw Six Days and Nights recently. And when David Schwimmer pops up in that movie, I'm just like, oh, he's not even trying to not be Ross. Yeah. I mean, I think part of that is the way that character is written in that movie, but... Uh, you know, kudos to Courtney Cox for really lobbying for this role because it's so like the anti-Monica. Yeah, and she, uh, it took me a second to recognize her. She's styled very differently. Yeah, they did They did a good job of making her very much a, a kind of a unique character. What I always find on rewatches of this movie, Matthew Lillard's performance in this movie 
it's it's he's taking a big risk with just how mm-hmm. big and crazy and and wild he's playing this character. I mean, even before he's revealed to be one of the killers and it works like i really Mm -hmm. think that it works in this movie and i would not change it at all but uh i just wonder on set if people are like whoa he's really going for it with all these like his eyes bugging out and there's a scene in the video store where he's like creeping up behind jamie kennedy which you pointed out on the vhs version he's mostly cropped out yeah you don't get to enjoy that quite as much yeah it's hard to balance my love of vhs uh for its kitschy nostalgic value value and just how much of the image you lose like this is shot very wide uh anamorphically and so you lose so much of the image but Uh, on matthew lillard's performance like i I think what's so interesting about it and he really is very talented and i don't know how much he's really done more recently i don't think i see him too often in this particular film he because you say, you comment on his bugged out eyes, he's going big, but he's really funny. And so you think, you know, he's kind of a jerk. Oh, you know, that annoying friend, but he gets you to laugh kind of thing. So it was you're watching, he seems so harmless. And then when that switch is flipped and you realize that he's one of the people going around brutally murdering people and that it's fun and a game for him it becomes so much more uh, unsettling to see that performance and how the tone shifts. Yeah, it completely recontextualizes everything, everything he said and done. Like, and it's it's great to this movie holds up so well to rewatch because you can look back at those scenes with Billy and Stu, the two killers, and as early as the first scene where you're seeing them interacting where Stu is going a, lit, a little too far with jokes about the killing and mm-hmm. and Billy's kind of just like, can you take it down a notch? <laughs> like you're kind of giving away the fact that we're the killers. Uh, like there, uh, there's uh, that scene and the video store scene are great examples of this plays one way before you know that he's the killer or that they are the killers in a completely different way. And yet he's consistent as a character throughout. Yeah. This is very different from, um, there's one of the killers in Scream 2, when that reveal happens, they kind of try to do a stew thing, except he completely turns into a different person where suddenly he's manic and crazy, you know, and it just does not, I, 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 you know, I, I, like I said, I enjoy the sequels, but it doesn't work because that character was not acting that way at all before that happened. Yeah, and I think that's where this works so well, because he really... And each of them is quite consistent. I think Skeet Ulrich does more of a shift later on, but he needs to because he starts out as Sydney's boyfriend, kind of caring, and then later maybe a little misunderstood when she thinks that he could be a bad guy. And he's drawing your sympathies. And he even pulled me in. There was a moment where I was like, man, wait a minute. I thought I remembered this guy was the killer. Is he not the killer? And then I realized, no, he he duped me. Yeah. I mean, he, he kind of fakes his own death there with uh, corn syrup. Yeah. And then, but when he comes around, he... He kind of his performance shifts, but in a in a more subtle. Yes, way. I I think Skeet Ulrich is really good here too. I mean, this is kind of just a love fest for every actor in this for me. But in some ways, Skeet Ulrich has the more difficult needle to thread 
of the two killers. By the way, another brilliant piece of writing, having two people be the killer, that that really had never been done as far as I could tell from other slashers. Um, and you have no idea because in that first scene with Drew Barrymore, likely both of them are there mm-hmm. because it, it doesn't make sense that they could overpower her jock boyfriend, just one of them. So, but they must be, both be in costume teaming up but the sh- but the film only shows one at a yeah. time, so there you really have no clue until the end that there's two. But then when you look back over the different events, it all adds up. And for us, the viewer, it gives the other killer an alibi while it's happening. Mm-hmm. Like it's and and unfortunately, because of the sequels, now that we're expecting multiple killers, that's kind of not as big of a surprise. And now we're really looking for that. Whereas. If there's a scene where the killer comes in and attacks Billy, we just accept that, oh, Billy's not the killer. I think that's really well handled. What I was going to say about Billy is I, I, I Skeet Ulrich is Billy, is that he's kind of got the more difficult performance in this in difficult role, I should say, because he's kind of like grossly pressuring Sydney for sex um, right from the first scene that we see him where yeah. he crawls through her bedroom window and um even so he plays it in such a way that it's kind of i mean if you set aside the knowledge that he's the killer which you kind of have to do with his character he is still kind it still kind of feels like oh he's just kind of immature and does genuinely love sydney but he's also just kind of you know, sexually frustrated, and it's just coming out in this kind of dickish way. Yeah, he doesn't understand boundaries or respect mm. for boundaries. Because on this watch, you had forgotten that Billy was the killer. So how did you <laughs> feel about that? Um, I just didn't like him because I didn't think he was a very good boyfriend because he didn't respect her that she was resisting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I always lose respect for any character or person that acts that way. So Oh, I mean, definitely. Yeah. I wasn't that... I, I was kind of shocked because they did... They did a fairly good job at the in the point where when she does agree to have sex with him, making that feel like an intimate emotional moment, and then that quick turn where he dies, like that it they they do a fairly good job of kind of pulling at your heartstrings. The reveal of the two killers, like I wish that I could view this through the eyes of I feel like whenever I show Scream to someone for the first time, I'm kind of like looking over at them to like see it. It's kind of like when we watched Psycho together and you had not seen it and you somehow had been protected, somehow been protected of the twist in that movie, which I feel like is so saturated pop culture. It's even on like the Universal Studio Tour. I Uh, don't understand how I hadn't heard the, 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 the twist for that and it was really weird watching it and then you were just watching me <laughs> they're they're doing a fifth one as we speak uh and they're bringing back a mo- fifth scream. a fifth scream not a fifth psycho and i'm so excited to watch that for the first time like it's such an exhilarating experience to be watching a scream movie where you don't know who the killer or killers are you're i think those are definitely valid points about billy i think that if you were to take him as a character aside from the fact that he is the killer, one of the killers, I I think he's deeply flawed. Um, I think Sydney should definitely dump him. 
but he's understandable i think yeah. like i understand like and i in a sense he's sort of playing a part i guess right i um, mean because in a way he's trying to play the nice boyfriend yeah because he need he needs that to have sex with her so that she can deserve to die by the horror movie rules which is just psychotic but yeah I mean, that's the whole thing Horror movies don't make psychos. They just make psychos more creative, as uh, Billy says at one point. You brought up while you were watching the movie, um, you asked me when Columbine had happened, yeah. which was 99, three years after this. But I feel like it, this the relationship between media and or, or fictional violence and real life violence is very much in the zeitgeist yeah in the 90s already you 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 had had some comments about that while we were watching i think i was wondering if this happened before if this film came out before columbine because when you think about this idea of these two guys that are obsessed with horror movies two young white male killers and are essentially trying to recreate horror movie-esque events within their own lives as if they've been so overpowered and influenced by that hor- the, the kind of violent media that they consume, even though that's not the intention here, it could encourage this idea that if you play violent video games or watch violent movies, then you could become a violent person. I don't believe that, but I feel like that that sort of came to a real head after Columbine, after they looked into what those boys' interests were. It's an interesting kind of part of this time capsule in, in that kind of few-year span where that, that seemed to be really on a lot of people's minds. I'm sure that idea came up earlier, especially during like the 80s slasher movies and that sort of thing, because so many of them were about high schoolers. But In the um, wake of, of shootings and, and things like that, they would always turn to entertainment to kind of put the blame. I mean, prior to this, they are blaming in the 80s, there's all this hysteria about heavy metal music turning kids into Satanists and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though there's no empirical evidence that connects uh, the the media that we absorb to the way we behave, um, even though like other countries, I mean, Japan certainly has very violent uh, films and video games and they mm-hmm. don't really have the problems with violence that we do. They do have very strong gun re- regulation, but that's not what this podcast <laughs> is about. Yeah. Like you mentioned the fact that there's two white male killers uh, that are sort of plotting this together and clearly have been plotting it for a long time. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of um, unsettling connections. Um, I agree with you that I view that as like coincidental. Mm-hmm. Just knowing the kind of writer that Kevin Williamson is, how plugged in he is to pop culture and what's Mm -hmm. kind of being discussed in sort of the zeitgeist, that these things were kind of already being, were very hot button issues before Columbine. Like, I mean, Tipper Gore famously and the crusade against like rap music in the early 90s. I feel like this was a lot of what people were talking about. Um, And even though I was pretty young when this movie came out, I was very aware of that too, where people on the left and right were kind of looking to blame somebody for the way the culture was kind of shifting. Mm -hmm. And that just ended up being violent movies and TV shows and, and video games and and not just violence, but also sex got in, in, in these things was kind of being pursued. 
And you see some of that now, but I feel like people are kind of less hysterical about it. And in a way, I think that's why Billy has that line. It's basically saying that they had an interest in killing before they even had an interest in horror movies. I feel like it kind of lets us know that Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven are not intending this to be... A message that horror movies cause violence. Exactly. Like, they're not they're not intending this to be, like, a cautionary tale. Like, mm-hmm. hide away your VHS copy of Friday the 13th Part 4 or your kid will do this. Like, that's they're way too smart to be, uh, you know, having that conversation. And that's what I really appreciate is just kind of that level of nuance. Mm-hmm. And in, in they kind of go even further into that in the second film where the killer just straight up says that he's going to blame the movies for being the reason that he's doing this, which is mm-hmm. interesting. And mm-hmm. he even name checks a lot of the people that are part of that movement, um, like political figures in the late night. And again, like pre-Columbine, very, um, very much sort of tapping into that that kind of wave of thinking. Yeah, I feel like this film addresses a little bit slut-shaming as well, this idea of, like, impurity for losing your virginity, and this idea, you know, because they address that, um, and I think this is really obvious in the Friday the 13th movies, like, if you've had sex, then you get targeted, like, you're gonna die, and it, in, 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 in here, you know, they, they kind of introduce that idea, somebody who is not a virgin gets killed, Rose McGowan's character, but then there's sort of a turn uh, where the kind of women take it back, and Sydney and uh, Gail's characters are able to take these two killers down. Well, one thing that I think we should talk about is an earlier scene where uh, Sydney begins to suspect that Billy, her boyfriend, could be one of the killers is because he drops a cell phone. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing that hasn't aged too well is just our relationship with cell phones. Yeah, because the idea was the killer called her and was giving her all these threats and then he climbed in through the window pretending that he didn't know anything that was going on and why are you freaked out and then he drops the cell phone so she immediately suspects that he must have been the one on the phone calling her and threatening her. It's like you said, if you made this movie now, you couldn't have that as something that would be a tip-off. Because everyone has a cell phone. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk of cloning cell phones, which is an expression that you don't really hear anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and basically, the killer's plan at the end is to frame the dad who they've kidnapped. He never left town. Um, frame the dad for the crimes. They cut each other up. To make it look like they were the lone survivors. Basically the idea being that the dad snapped in the one year anniversary of the murder. And one of the things that they mention is that they had cloned his cell phone. And that was the phone they were using to make all of the creepy calls to their victims. Outside of this movie, I have not heard of... Maybe I'm just ignorant to this mid-90s cell phone technology, but have you heard that used before outside of this movie? No, but I mean, in theory, it kind of makes sense that you could you could replicate... I mean, I don't even think they had SIM cards at this time, but like current day, it makes sense that you could somehow replicate someone's SIM card to kind of like create a, a second version of their phone. So maybe at, at this time... You know, there was some sort of technology where you where you could you could essentially just recreate another phone. That scene that you bringing up that scene reminds me. Um, 
You have to wonder if, and we were sort of debating this while watching the movie, does Billy in that scene want to get arrested? Because, I mean, for the plot of the movie, it's good because it sort of makes Billy look like a red herring to us. Because we're like, oh, if the cops are arresting him at this point in the movie then he's probably not the killer. Yeah. And then when the killer calls her, then we're like, oh, it's definitely not him because we're not thinking that there's two killers. At least I certainly wasn't. Right. Yeah, I, I kind of debated this when you asked that because I think to some extent he doesn't want to be, he wouldn't want to be caught because I, I think he was calling her and escalating the situation because he kind of gets off on it, right? Like th- this is how he gets his excitement and it's fun for him. And it escalated a little bit too much to the point where she was going to involve the police. And that's where he called. That's where he ended up uh, dropping the call because he had shown up in costume, too. And I think he wasn't ready to confront any kind of law enforcement or have them there. So he hid the costume and then popped in through the window like he usually does to try try and de-escalate. That that was my my take is that he he was probably trying to kind of calm things down and so she wouldn't she wouldn't continue to escalate this to law enforcement, but then he dropped the cell phone by accident and then that was it. But not the cell phone that was used in the crime, which made me think that Stu was the one that was chasing her through, or at least on the phone, maybe even chasing her through the house. Another thing you said while we were watching, I think it was when uh, Tatum gets killed in the garage door during the party. Well, one, just being like the, how that's not really a feasible way to kill somebody. But also what I thought was really interesting and I've never really thought about was you said, Wait, do these guys just want to kill their girlfriends and the rest of this is just an addition? Yeah, it was so it's it's really weird that these two guys specifically targeted their girlfriends who were seem like fine girlfriends. They seem to get along quite well. But you know, I guess you can't really argue with a crazy axe murderer. Yeah. Um, I do like that Tat- Tatum does some damage before he takes her down though. She throws Full, full on throws beer bottles at him. Like she really goes for it. Yeah, that's a great sequence. Um, yeah, I think that did they do like a Mythbusters or something? Or am I just imagining of because she goes through the doggy door of the garage door and then the killer or she gets stuck and then the killer, presumably Stu, it could be Billy, presses the button and it goes up and smashes her. But I think people were saying that either... You, the garage door wouldn't even lift because of the weight or it would automatically stop because of the motion. It, I think it would be both. Because, yeah. I mean, she had to have been at least like 120 pounds or something, which mm. a garage door isn't built to lift that kind of weight. Yeah. So the mechanism, it shouldn't even work. And then, yeah, her motion, they... Because I feel like even back then they had those little motion sensors low toward the ground and she was kicking her feet like crazy. Yeah. Oh, you know, I realized we skipped over um, one kill, which is uh, the principal of the school, which was sort of a 13th hour addition to the script because there are no murders in the movie between the opening sequence and the third act of the movie, which you don't even notice because the movie's so engrossing. But uh, uh, old Bob Weinstein, old creepy Bob said... You need a murder around the 35 minute mark just to like yeah. keep the teens in their seats. And that scene where the principal is like looking in the mirror at the mask 
and like trying to because basically kids have been pranking each other with the mm-hmm. ghost face mask um and then gets killed in his office i could almost do without that scene but um i did read that it's certain i did notice that it serves the purpose of getting a lot of people out of the house and away from the party because they all want to see the principal's dead body yeah uh so it serves that story function of getting the main characters alone at the house but it is interesting how kind of tacked on that murder yeah. feels. The thing I rem- just remembered is the bit of trivia you told me yesterday that the suit was almost white. Yes, the the famous ghost face robes. Yeah, so you have that white ghost face and black robes, but it was almost white robes, but then you said it was they changed it because it was too reminiscent of a KKK robe? Yeah, um, that's that's the reason that was given. You know, um, I brought up Bob Weinstein. Um, I want to bring up some of the really dumb things that he did in the course of this. I actually read a book about um, called Down and Dirty Pictures. It was about Miramax and Dimension Films of this era. And just really quickly... Uh, the Weinsteins had no idea what they had. They thought this. They also thought that this was kind of a lark, this whole thing. But they did it because Drew Barrymore and Wes Craven were involved. They kept, uh, especially Bob Weinstein said, "Oh, you got to change that mask. It's not scary." And he told them to shoot the scene with seven different masks so he could choose, which is crazy. That's not the way movies are made. It's That's extremely a inefficient. Waste of time. And um, luckily, you have Wes Craven steering the ship, and he was like, "No, you, we're going to show you the footage, and you're going to think it's great." So they had Patrick Lussier on VHS tape do a the editor of the movie quickly do a cut of that of the opening and they gave it to him and said this is what you've got and they looked at it and of course that show-stopping opening sequence he didn't say shit to them for the rest of the movie because uh clearly they were right about that mask being scary how big is your ego to say you have to film this with seven different masks and show me yeah i mean it's it's crazy i mean knowing what we know now about the weinstein brothers it does not surprise me um but I will say one um, good thing that Bob Weinstein did is he's credited with changing the title because it was Scary Movie all the way to the last day of production Ugh. until I think it was Bob said, you can't you can't call it Scary Movie. You got to call it something else. Because well, that's a terrible yeah. title. And it was, I think Scream was his idea. And initially, Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven were like, that's a stupid title for a movie. Why would we call it Scream? But it's interesting because it feels like Scream was always supposed to be the title. Just starting with the mask, which looks like the Edward Munch painting of the, ah, I'm doing the Home Alone face at you. (laughs) And just that Matthew Lillard line where he's like, it's a Scream, baby, that's in like every trailer for this movie. But they also say scary movie like four times in in this film. I guess it's just a happy coincidence that one, the mask that... uh, that ghost face mask is perfect for the title scream and yeah. that Matthew Lillard line, which he delivers like a maniac, much like every line in this movie. Oh, the, oh I just want to say one other thing uh-huh. to give the devil his due. Aside from getting it named Scream, which I do not think that the, had this movie been called Scary Movie, it would have done it, nearly as well. There's no way it would have been a success with a name like Scary Movie. The other thing is he, the MPAA, which already, as we know, didn't like the guts falling out in the opening or Drew Barrymore hanging from the tree. They wanted to do all these other cuts. 
And what Bob, Ste- what Bob Weinstein said to the MPAA was, you're watching it the wrong way. You've got to watch it like a comedy, which is not the way to watch this movie. But that's kind of what you had to do with the MPAA is just like trick them into watching the movie your way. Yeah. And then they agreed to just let it go forward without an NC-17. I just don't understand the standards at the time that this could have been seen as a potential NC-17. I think the restrictions not, on violence have definitely loosened. The, the no restrictions nudity. on sex have not, though. There's a great documentary called uh, This Film Is Not Yet Rated that just sort yeah. of goes into the, all the hypocrisies. Of, but there's no nudity, and the sex scene is very, very tame. It was just violence. They yeah. were going to slap it with an NC-17 huh. for violence. Um and, uh, I mean, since then, I mean, on network television has more graphic violence than Scream does. Like, the show Hannibal, I think of. But it's really just sex that they get hung up about now, which is kind of like... Prudish. Prudish, you know, kind of Puritanism. But that's a whole other uh, conversation. Yeah, the whole party sequence at the end of the movie is great. All these balls up in the air that are being juggled between... Dewey outside with Gale and their kind of blossoming romance. Mm-hmm. Gale hiding the camera in the house and it having a 30 second delay to the van that's outside. Mm-hmm. Tatum's murder happening in the garage. All these things are happening simultaneously. And I think it's also a triumph of the editing that it works so well. Jamie Kennedy's, uh, your favorite actor, Jamie Kennedy, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. His famous speech about the rules of horror, mm-hmm. which had not really been discussed at length in a horror movie up to this point. Where, no, they all just kind of followed it. <laughs> yeah, they kind of like kind of blindly following them without. Uh, I mean, some more so than others. I would say. I think it became more of a thing, like in the mid '80s, like mm-hmm. the there was kind of this uh, moralism in the movies, where the rules are. Don't drink or do drugs, don't have sex, and don't say, I'll be right back. Uh, He'll never be back. (laughs) Yeah, because he won't be back. You know, just all of this great stuff happening, um, all at what I think was a real location, this house that they shoot in. One thing that's kind of interesting is Matthew Lillard's character makes a joke about, you know, making a point to say, I'll be back. And then... You know, when you when you kind of reframe it and see that again, knowing that he's the killer, it's kind of funny because he's saying that as, as such a funny thing because he knows that he's the one murdering people. Yeah, and I also wonder, like, the beers are in the garage, and is when he's going to get more beer, is he just going into the garage where he's just killed Tatum? Because that's sort of a tip-off to the audience that it's him, unless there's also yeah. beer in the kitchen. Yeah, good point. Well, I mean, one of the things that you pointed out is Tatum gets pulled up by the garage door and is just hanging there dead. And then later, a bunch of people leave the party and don't notice that there's this girl hanging dead from the garage door. That's true. I did notice on this watch that the garage door is not on the front of the house. Like, it's around the side of the house. So maybe right. that's why Sydney is the first to find her there. That, that makes sense, Yeah. If they kind of structured it so that it's away. There's some more kills that happen. Uh, the cameraman, the poor cameraman, Kenny, gets his throat slit pretty brutally. In front of Sydney. I guess at this point she thinks that her boyfriend, Billy, was innocent after all because she just witnessed him being killed. She doesn't know yet that he is alive and that was all faked. 
But I think one thing that I was just thinking too is that there's this sense of like false consent to that to to the sex that they had because she consented to have sex with someone that she didn't think was a murderer that she not just a murderer trusted. but the killer of her mother but the killer which of her own really mother sick. which I think like retroactively kind of messes with that sense of con- uh, that sense of consent especially for her that's this really big betrayal because she had kind of resisted for so long even though he kept pushing her and he got her to that point where she finally was like sure let's go for it and then to find out okay this isn't at all the person that i thought you were that's very uh unsettling and skeezy and uncomfortable if sydney prescott was a real person just imagine the amount of trauma that she would have from this experience um, yeah I mean, from the Billy situation alone, but then all this other shit, like having to see her friends and, and family killed. Yeah. Billy is revealed to be alive, and then he shoots Randy. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, he does not kill Jamie Kennedy, right? Because <laughs> Jamie Kennedy's character is a virgin, so he gets to survive, <laughs> apparently. Um... And then, you know, it's, it's, once that moment happens, you're like, well, wait, then who attacked him in the bedroom? And then, of course, she ran, runs into Stu, and it instantly makes sense. Right. Uh, and it all that whole, It's just handled so beautifully. And it's interesting that I don't really think you would never see them wearing the robes, or there's never any true unmasking scene that happens. That's true. I didn't really think about that. But yeah, you you really go immediately from them in the robes to them out of them. You see them using the voice changer, which is important, because that explains how they are both able to do that weird voice. Yeah. Later, Sydney wears the robes when she attacks Billy with the umbrella, yeah. which I always wondered why she did that, other than it just being cool. Yeah, I feel like. I guess it's empowerment. Maybe? I, I, yeah, I think it's it's on, honestly it, like it felt like she was taking on yeah to your point empowerment. She was taking on that role to totally fuck them up and fight back, and it's almost kind of like this turnabout, a taste of their own medicine sort of thing, and it's yeah. very it's very effective. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if she really would have actually taken time if this if these were real events. To, to put that costume on, but for the sake of the film, it's pretty interesting. Stu gets his head crushed at the TV, which I always thought was pretty brutal. And you mentioned fitting death. Fitting death, because, you know, all the movies. He wanted yeah. to create his horror movies, and now he's getting killed by them. And again, like, very effective and done without any blood. Like, I always forget, I always think of that as being very violent, but I think it's just because... The thought of a big 90s TV landing on your head is just such a visceral thing to think about. But it's a, it's a bloodless but uh, powerful scene. I think what's nice too about this scene is you have up until now this tension between uh, Gail and, and Sydney because of the tension over their disagreement about what happened to Sydney's mom. You... See, get to see them team up to take these two murderers down together and it's this kind of unifying moment for these two women to go completely destroy these evil men yeah it's very satisfying and her redemption i think is believable uh, uh gales because she doesn't really change who she is necessarily 
but she i think that the, her team up with sydney is very believable and very effective mm-hmm. i love the moment where billy comes back for one last scare yeah. <laughs> uh and sydney shoots him in the head i don't know i, I was trying I, it's hard because i remember us going through this with die hard uh it's hard for me to not talk about this movie in anything but superlatives just because i think it does so much very very well yeah it's very effective within its genre and it's and it's fun like it, it it's nice having something that's a little bit light-hearted with so it kind of interrupts all what otherwise would be sort of heavy and and uh you know we haven't even talked much about david arquette's character yeah. but he's just such a sweetheart it's so sad seeing him with a knife in his back but luckily he lives yeah, not um, his sister. So his sister is played by Rose McGowan, a.k.a. Tatum, who sadly dies. But there's a great exchange between them at the police station when his sister, when when Rose McGowan's character comes to pick up Sydney after uh, Sydney's scare at her house. And uh, <laughs> David Arquette is like, Mom told you that you were supposed to treat me with respect here. <laughs> when I wear this I uniform, I'm a man of the law. <laughs> <laughs> and she just does not care. She just totally yeah. dismisses him. And he's just so sweet and charming in this role. Uh, he's so baby face. Yeah. I think one final detail is about the cover of the VHS tape. Oh, yeah. And it's that you pointed out Skeet Ulrich is clean shaven through the whole film, but for somehow on the cover he has a goatee and it doesn't make any sense. I didn't notice that for years until I don't know, the moment it clicked, it sort of blew my mind. Because I, I don't even think about that, but I guess yeah, for the photo shoot he just grown a goatee and nobody told him to shave it. It could be that he had grown it for another movie and they just didn't care. Like, oh that'll look cool and brooding on the cover yeah but i'm glad he's clean shaven in this uh, the goatee that doesn't quite work for him well and it makes him look a little younger because he is supposed to be a high school student <laughs> all right sean so uh i think we all know the answer <laughs> but do you buy it rent it or tape over it yeah you buy it if you asked me what's your favorite scary movie i might just say scream like this might be it for me wow um you know, there's a, I mean, it's hard to say because it changes a lot, but this is one that I just keep going back to, and it's it's 20 years I've been watching this movie, and I, I love it probably more now than I ever did, and it really holds up to rewatches. I think the sequels are fun, the third one less so, but I, I enjoy them, uh, but I, they, they just don't have the power of this movie. They're not as fresh and original I think this movie really revitalized the whole horror genre. Um, yeah, definitely buy it, Lindsay. This is actually, honestly, a buy it for me. And it's because, like you said, it's a little bit layered on when you have the chance to rewatch it, you kind of rediscover different things about it, which is fun. So it, it's something that um, remains watchable. And I like that balance. I like that it's a little bit meta. It has a little bit of commentary about its own genre, but not in an annoying way. It's still sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it, it can make you jump and feel a little scared, too. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I do not know about the sequels. I guess we'll watch the sequels and see. <laughs> At least two and three were on VHS. Uh, by, by the time three had come out, we were a DVD household. 
Um, but I know that we had two on VHS, so maybe at some point we'll have to have that on the show. All right, Lindsay, well, uh, we're scooting back over to your collection next episode. What tape are we going to watch? We are going to watch What Women Want. Oh, the man. Mel Gibson movie. That's Nancy Myers too. Yeah, and Helen Hunt. Yeah, I I've definitely we've watched that together at least once. We have. I've also seen the Chinese version of it. Uh, we're gonna have a lot to talk about with that movie. I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there will probably be quite a bit to go over. <laughs> well, uh, definitely tune in for what women want next time. Uh, I'd like to thank our good friend Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes at tapeheadspodcast.com. You can reach out with any questions at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on your podcast app. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. 